Our theme is what happened at the tomb, and we're going to read from Matthew chapter 27 and the first few verses of Matthew 28. Uh, Let me read this for you. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate said. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. There's a story that Tony Evans recently retold of a man who was lost in a desert without water. But off in the distance, he saw an old makeshift structure. He knew that he couldn't make it much longer, so he used just about all the energy that he had left and got to the covering as fast as his worn-out legs would take him. To his surprise, inside he found a jar of pure, clean water. This jar was placed on the floor next to a pump. Filled with relief, he walked over to the jar to quench his parched throat and his overwhelming thirst. And as he reached down to pick up that jar of water, he noticed a sign. A sign read, Use this water to prime the pump. When you have gotten as much water as you need, refill the jar and leave it for the next person who will pass this way. The man suddenly found himself on the horns of a dilemma because he was so incredibly thirsty. He was close to dehydration. He thought, what if he followed the directions on the sign and there was no water in the well? What if he poured all of the water he now held in this jar in his hand and he got nothing in return? Was that worth the risk? Was it worth even a try? The man had to make a decision to either fill himself now once and have the water gone or to pour out what he had and take the chance that deep down there was so much more. So the man made the decision to prime the pump. And it was a good decision because the water began to flow freely. He drank to his heart's delight and collected enough water to take him on the rest of his journey. 
Before he left, he refilled the jar and placed it back where he had found it next to that note. And underneath the words that were written on the note, he wrote his own thought. Trust me, it works. <laughs> now today is Resurrection Sunday, Easter. I chose to begin with that story because it is not enough to simply acknowledge the history and facts of the resurrection of Jesus. Only when we prime the pump by putting all of our faith in Jesus will we begin to fill up with the power and grace of God in our own lives. This morning I want to accomplish three things in the minutes that I have left. First, to review five basic approaches that people take to, to the resurrection. Second, to offer trustworthy evidence that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And then to establish why this matters for you and me today. So the question that we're asking today is, what happened at the tomb? This is an important question that a number of people have been asking. For instance, this person wrote a book with that title, uh, What Happened? Although I don't think that was really the subject matter that she was writing about. <laughs> and then another person couldn't let that go undone, so Howie Carr wrote a response to that book. It's what really happened. <laughs> and that guy's on the front of it. But, but really, none of that has anything to do with our question, what happened at the tomb? Now, there are five classic historical approaches that people have taken in, in processing the information about the resurrection. The first is called the swoon theory. Swoon, S-W-O-O-N. Now, the, this theory is that Jesus never really died. He only appeared to die, passed out, and then he was somehow revived after three days in that tomb. But the theory, when you look at it more closely, begins to fail. For instance, there's the witness of the guards they knew that he hung on a cross, that he was declared dead by trained executioners. These people were no fools. They weren't rookies. They'd done this hundreds of times before. And then there's the physical evidence, specifically the spear in his side. When they went to check to see if Jesus was dead yet, one of the Roman soldiers took a spear, literally punctured his ribcage, and water and blood began flowing out. Well, medical researchers have determined what that was as they punctured the pericardium, that sac that surrounds the heart and protects it, which is why you had this mix of blood and water. A number of years ago, back in 1986, I think it was, the Journal of American Medical Association published an article by a couple of researchers from the Mayo Clinic showing that the evidence that Jesus uh, really was dead before they even put that spear in his side it was what was the result of that particular experiment. And then there were, there were the eyewitnesses. And there were several of them who saw the risen Jesus, as many as 500 in one occasion, so much so that the Apostle Paul wrote, this was not done in a corner. And add to that the time factor. Jesus was embalmed and lying in a tomb for two full days and into the third day. How on earth did Jesus have the strength to come back with no medical attention, no food, no water? Oh, and then to have the presence of mind to very neatly rewrap the burial clothes so that they were in the way that they were found. The final detail has to do with the stone. It was said to be so large that it would take 10 men to move it. So who moved the stone? The disciples weren't there. They were still hiding. It was only a group of women. 
So we're asked to reach this conclusion that Jesus being bitten, beaten, whipped, punctured, and passed out, not eating for three days, somehow revived, had the presence of mind to rewind the grave clothes and the strength to roll away the stone. I don't think so. The second major approach to the resurrection is known as the hallucination theory. Now this says that the disciples wanted to see Jesus so badly that they all became convinced that he rose, that they all had the same hallucination that they saw him. This one fails for a few reasons too. It's one thing for one person to hallucinate. All right, how many of you hallucinate? No, you don't have to tell me that. Uh, <laughs> but, it's, but it simply doesn't happen that there are mass hallucinations where everybody has the same hallucination at the same time. Again, psychiatrists and psychologists tell us that simply doesn't happen. And add to it that the disciples didn't expect Jesus to rise because they didn't understand what he told them. The third major theory is called the conspiracy theory. It's the idea that the disciples lied, that they made all of this up, they were disillusioned over the loss of Jesus, so they concocted a plan to grab victory out of the jaws of defeat. This is a theme that's been covered in a number of novels like Hugh Schoenfeld's The Passover Plot a number of years ago that literally sold hundreds of thousands of copies. The problem is this kind of theme breaks down too for a number of reasons. First, conspiracies always break down. Sammy the Gun spoke up and John Gotti ended up going to prison because of it. Chuck Colson learned from Watergate and its cover-up that the most well-trained group of lawyers in the country couldn't keep a secret because there were too many of them and some of them just had to talk. Add into that the character of the disciples. Only Judas was known as a schemer. The rest were ordinary people with ordinary jobs. And the courage of the disciples to the end. Not one of them ever changed his story while most of them were persecuted and even died violent deaths because of their faith. The fourth approach is what's called the myth theory. It's the theory that the story isn't really true, but it doesn't matter. Somehow Christianity was born out of it, though, and, and that's enough for us. We shouldn't worry about the factual basis of all this. But that fails, too. Specialists in language and different kinds of literature have looked at the Gospels and they said, you know, there's a literary style for myth. Usually myth begins with, some time ago, far away in a different place, there was a man. And the Gospels are all written with real names, real people, real facts, real places, times, and all these things that could be checked out within their life, lifetimes. In other words, it wasn't myth. They were writing narrative history. And literary people can tell the difference between narrative history and, and myth. And the myth concept is built on circular reasoning. One of the key reasons that some try to label these events as myth is that they rule out the possibility of the supernatural or of miracles. So if you start with that idea, you will end up round circle coming up with the same thing that you assumed from the beginning. Which leads us to the fifth possible theory. And that is that Jesus really rose from the dead. And that's the conviction I'm working on this morning. See, here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. The evidence of the resurrection continues to compel people to pour their faith into Jesus. The evidence pushes us in that direction. Now, for me, this got personal when I was a 17-year-old kid. 
I don't know if you remember when you're a senior in high school and they have that first research paper that you have to write. And I still remember the teacher who gave us that project and he said, you can write about anything you want. I really don't care about the topic or the subject matter. All I care about is the process of how you go through it. I said, great. What he didn't know is I was wrestling with this whole concept of faith. I'd grown up in a very faith-filled family. My grandfather and three of my uncles were fundamentalist Baptist ministers. You want to talk about pressure. (laughs) And I was trying to figure out, is this my faith? Do I really believe this? Or have I adopted this because it's my parents' faith? So I told him I wanted to write on the, the theme of, is the Jesus of the Bible also the Jesus of history? And he didn't want me to do that. And he pressed me on that a little bit. And he said, why do you want to write on this subject? I'm uncomfortable with it. And I told him, I was trying to figure this out for myself. I want to know whether this was my faith or mom and dad's. And was there enough reason to believe it? And he said, okay, I'll let you do it. And I began to discover that there were all kinds of reasons that supported the background, the historical Uh, reasoning for the faith of these early Christians. I'd like to walk you through just a few of those ideas, and to tell you the truth, I I actually cut back because I knew I wouldn't have time for more than the drink from the fire hose that I'm going to give you right now. Let's look at some evidence for the resurrection. The first piece is the empty tomb. So in Matthew 28, we read these words, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Crucified people are dead people. You got that, right? But he goes on to say, he is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The tomb had been heavily guarded and and it was sealed. That left only two possibilities. The first is that the guards had somehow been overpowered by a stealthy band of disciples the same disciples who had run away when Jesus first was arrested and trouble began to arise and hadn't been seen for the most part during the last three days. Or a supernatural event occurred by the hand and by the power of God. But the resurrection happened. Let me throw in some added details. All four of the Gospels record women being the first to the tomb that morning. They could not have rolled away the stone by themselves. And the disciples were still in hiding. And the soldiers were never punished, defeating all theories that they'd somehow been overwhelmed by an armed group of men and that therefore that they had been thwarted. The empty tomb. Here's a second piece of evidence for the resurrection. It's the one I just alluded to a moment ago. The first eyewitnesses were women. This is not an anti-women statement. This is a pro-women statement. But we've got to go back and look at the culture of that time. So Matthew, just a few verses in verse 28. Verse 1 says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Verse 9, Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Verse 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. All four Gospels declare that women were the first to see the empty tomb and that they were the ones who brought the message to the disciples who then began to inform the world. Mary Magdalene was the most prominent among them. 
When you put all the Gospels together, Mary, the mother of James, was there. Another woman named Joanna and Salome are all part of this entourage. They had come two nights before to place spices at the tomb as Jesus was buried, and now they were coming back to check on the tomb early in the morning on the third day, which would have been Sunday morning. If one was to fabricate a story in the first century, this was not the way to do it. Here's why. Women had very few rights and were not held in high regard in the Greco-Roman world at that time. A woman's testimony was not allowed in court for the Romans. And in Jewish circles, it took the testimony of two women to equal that of one man. You see how things were weighted against them? The point is, if the gospel writers were inventing a story that they wanted to present as a hoax to pull one off over the people, the last people that they would claim to have been the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection would be women, unless it was absolutely true. Here's the third piece of evidence. It's called the minimal facts argument, the minimal facts of the resurrection. Dr. Gary Habermas is considered the world's foremost expert on the history of the resurrection. He developed what is known as the minimal facts argument where he uses only the information that is accepted by nearly all New Testament scholars, including those who are skeptics, who do not believe that Jesus really rose. Here are the five pieces to that minimal facts approach. One, that Jesus died by crucifixion. That is unanimous among all the scholars, skeptics and, and naysayers alike, along with those who are believers. That it's attested through history that Jesus died by crucifixion. The second piece is that the, Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. Now, some of these scholars are not saying that they believe that actually happened, but that the disciples believed that it happened. That's the second piece that's admitted across the board. Third, that the church persecutor, Saul of Tarsus, was suddenly converted to the cause of Christ. Unthinkable, the guy who's rounding up Christians, throwing them in prison, has an encounter with Jesus, sees a bright light that blinds him, hears the voice of the risen Jesus, and he becomes the most ardent follower of Jesus among the whole bunch. The fourth piece was that the skeptic, James, the brother of Jesus, went through a sudden transformation that only happened after the resurrection, and James became the key leader of the Jerusalem church. And then the last one, step five, that all the scholars acknowledge was that the tomb was empty, and they don't have an answer for what happened and where the body went if it wasn't such a case that Jesus raised, was risen from the dead. Just taking the minimal effects leads us right to the foot of this question, what happened at the tomb? Add in one more piece, embarrassing details. I love the way that Rox was talking about you know, her stories. If I get up there, everybody's gonna see that I've got issues too, and if I, I lead a, a small group Bible study with women, they're all gonna know that I have issues too. Embarrassing details about life. So the fourth factor is the embarrassing details that are part of the gospel story. Matthew 26 says, Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. That was on the night when Jesus was arrested. John chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 38 says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. I'm going to explain why that's an embarrassing detail. And one more in John chapter 20, 
But Thomas said to the other disciples, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where that spear had come, I will not believe. So, in evaluating historical documents, embarrassing details add to the veracity of a historical claim rather than take away from it. What, what, what the nature of people normally is to whitewash things and make people look better, but when there are embarrassing details in there, it has the ring of authenticity. So the fact that women were the first to report about the resurrection is one piece of that puzzle. That a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council that condemned Jesus and handed him over to the Romans of which Joseph of Arimathea was a part, that Joseph had to provide for a proper burial is embarrassing because it means that the disciples were AWOL. They were not caring for Jesus. They'd made no preparations for his body and they didn't even show up after he died. Hiding. The report that all the disciples fled after the arrest of Jesus was absolutely embarrassing. And that Thomas was full of doubts until he saw the risen Jesus with his own eyes. These details in historical documents add to the credibility of the gospel accounts. They were not whitewashed in order to make the disciples look good. All of their faulty steps, all of their unbelief, all of their fear is on display. Add to that, their willingness to die for what they knew. Fifth piece of evidence. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2 says, It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Individual people may die for a lie and hold that secret right to their graves, but large groups of people are unable to pull that off. Somebody cracks. Somebody uh, finds that the pressure is too great or the persecution is too risky and they want a better deal. So I mentioned a moment ago how Chuck Colson noted that Watergate's tough guys couldn't keep their secret for, for three weeks. This is specifically what Chuck wrote. I know that the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. And then he goes on to say, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That leads to the transformation of the disciples, a sixth piece of evidence. Without beating a dead horse here, the simple realization is that the disciples went from men who fled when the Romans came for Jesus to people who stood up in the streets just a few days later and proclaimed to the world and for the rest of their lives that they had seen the risen Jesus and they would do anything they could. They would risk every possible danger in order to spread that news throughout the world. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 records, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. 
They're speaking of the religious leaders in, in Jerusalem who opposed the disciples. They were astonished. And then one last piece. This is one we hardly ever talk about. The conversion of many priests. Acts chapter 6 verse 7 includes this statement. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests, Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. For Jewish priests to give up job security and reputations to join this fledgling church, this band of outcasts was a big deal. And so Luke writes that not only did the church keep expanding rapidly, but a large number of priests became obedient to Christian faith. Add to that the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, soon to be known as Paul. He moved from chief persecutor of Christians to becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, all because of post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So I don't know how you process all this information, but I come to this conclusion that the evidence of the resurrection continues to compel people to pour their faith into Jesus. A number of years ago, Lee Strobel was the legal affairs editor for the Chicago Tribune. He was an atheist. He wanted nothing to do with the church. And his wife began to attend a church in the Chicago area. And he noticed changes in her life, and he was furious. So one day he went to church with her. He declared that he was going to go to the church so that he could find out enough to prove that this was all wrong and rescue his wife from all that. After two or three Sundays, he realized he'd heard enough truth that now the project changed. And he spent the next two years of his life researching to find out if there was enough reason to believe that it was true so that he could join her in that faith. He said it all came together for him two years later on one specific day. And he said it wasn't a rush of emotion. It was what he called a rush of reason as all of the pieces of evidence that he'd been researching came together and it made him realize that this was no accident. This was no emotional decision by these disciples and others who followed them. And he put his faith in Christ. Why believe this? Well, first is because the evidence, when you really look closely, begins to overwhelm our doubts because there's so much more than we've even covered this morning. And when you do put your faith in Christ, you find that this act of faith aligns you with the story of what God has been doing throughout the ages, his entire overarching story of redeeming people in the midst of a lost and broken world. And you become part of something far greater than yourself. Now here's what I hope, that you will reach some kind of a conclusion today that will move you forward in your faith journey. One might be for some of you who've been away for some time and you, you're hearing things that you knew to be true but you've, you've kind of forgotten about or chosen not to act on for a while, is that you might be saying, you know what, I believe this is true and I want to renew my faith in Jesus. You can do that. From some others, uh, for some others, you might be saying, wow, I just got hit with a, a, a drink from the fire hose of evidence about the resurrection and I can at least admit that there's more evidence than I realize today. If that's where you are at and you can go no further this morning, that's a wonderful place to be at because you're at least saying there's more for me to investigate. What if there's so much ever evidence that I can find that it will ultimately overwhelm my doubts? And if you're there, I hope that you'll talk with one of us about it 
Because for most people, it takes a while to go through that part of the process. But there are all kinds of people in this room, and I'm looking at one of my friends right now, that went through that kind of journey, and it absolutely transforms the rest of your life when you dare to take that assignment on. And then maybe there are a few here who are thinking right now that based on the evidence of the resurrected Jesus, that you're ready to trust Jesus now as the Savior who paid for your sins on the cross and who rose again so that as we sing these songs and as we celebrate the way we are today, it's not just going through the routines, but it's an act of joy and renewal and encouragement. I hope you'll take some step forward today as a result of being here. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for every person in this room. Thank you that they took the time to come and to celebrate. There is something or someone who has compelled them to come and to either be in the presence of those who are worshiping or to openly acknowledge that we are in awe of what you've done. Thank you for sending Jesus into the world, not just to fix us a little bit, but to offer us a whole new way of life. So Lord, hear the person who might be whispering very quietly, Lord, I need to renew my faith. I've let it grow cold and dormant and I don't want it to stay there. And here's my first step in that process. I'm trusting you again. Lord, hear the person who may be saying, okay, God, I normally don't talk to you, but if this is what prayer is, I'm doing that right now. And I'm acknowledging there's more than I bargained for. Help me to process this and to find out more reasons so that I can find enough to convince me to follow him. And Lord, hear the person who might be saying, I'm ready. I know. And this morning has, has brought me to that place where I now have the pieces of the puzzle that were missing before, and I know I need to put my faith in Jesus. And I need to get out of the personal salvation business. I can't save myself. I can't make myself good enough. I'm going to trust that he is the Savior who did something for me that no one else could do. And I ask that you'd forgive me, that you'd allow me to have this new eternal life that Jesus promised, even now, and that you would begin to change me from the inside out. Here I come, doubts and all, pouring out my faith, priming the pump that you might do even more in my life. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.